Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Tiadam Sulongkumer, the host of this channel. Today, I'm here with Dr. Puya to talk about his book, Nationalism in the Vernacular, State, Tribes, and the Politics of Peace in Northeast India. Now, this is a very interesting book, because, not only because it talks about um, nationalism, but it talks about nationalism in certain part of India, Northeast India, and specifically it talks about people in um, Mizoram. So today I'm here with the author himself, and I'm sure we will have a very uh, fruitful conversation here and delve into the very aspect of um you know, the vernacular nationalism uh, there in Mizoram. So let me straight away go to the author himself and ask something about himself. So, Dr. Puya, can you tell us something about yourself? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I I must uh, begin by thanking New Books uh, Network for this wonderful opportunity to share my work uh, to a much uh, larger audience and to be yeah, for uh, reaching me out. Uh, I'm, I'm very you know, happy to be about to have this conversation uh, on my work. Uh, well, uh, to briefly introduce myself, uh, I am Rauwa uh, Puya. Uh, currently, I'm teaching uh, sociology at the Department of Humanities and Social Science as an assistant professor at Indian Institute of Technology, Ruti, IIT Ruti. So prior to this, uh, well, I obtained my PhD from the Tata Institute of Social Sciences uh, the Northeast Regional Campus, which is based in Bohati, Assam. Then uh, I completed in the year 2017. Then I joined the Center for Study of Developing Societies at New Delhi as a visiting assistant professor. And then I was, uh, during my tenure at CSDS New Delhi, I was awarded the Arvind Raghunathan and Sri Vala Subhamanyam South Asia Visiting Fellowship, which is a one-year postdoc fellowship at uh, Harvard University. So uh, it was uh, basically my time at Harvard that you know I really began to work and develop uh, this book process. So after that, you know I returned to India and I joined IIT. Yeah, that's that's quite interesting. Now you have said that um, this work was part of your PhD work, but also at the same time you had also expanded on it. So um, you know every research work has a background story to it. Every scholar has a story to it as to how he or she comes to a topic, right? So. Uh, how did you come to this topic and why did you find that after your PhD you still need to, you know, work on it more and then, you know, produce this work? Yeah. Uh, well, I think, uh, thank you for that question. I, I, I think uh, uh, I joined PhD in 2013. Yeah. Uh, I think PhD program of PISIS in 2013. And, uh, by, and the book came out in 2022, right, uh, in May. So it is, it's 10 years. Actually, and uh, looking back, you know, I, you know, uh, I begin to feel, and this is my feeling, and this is, you know, how I look back at it. Uh, writing a book is a journey to me, and particularly writing this book is a journey to me. And uh, not only because of, you know, the time it takes, but also because of uh, how one grow and develop eventually, uh, both personally and professionally in terms of, you know, the way we think and the way we look at it. So, uh, personally, you know, I, I would like to place uh, my own uh, journey with my experience as a young student uh, and my own personal background, uh, sociologically what we often call my own positionality as a researcher and as an academic. So, 
uh, I always see academia as you know in as a as a very very political space. Yeah, uh, in the sense that you know research is very political, and that production of knowledge is about power, or even in terms of what is known and what is not known, or what we often call the ontological and epistemological eraser. And I always position myself, yeah, within you know the web of power relations in which academia work and operates. Now, uh, I wrote this thinking simply because when I joined uh, my BA and MA in in Bombay. So I began to, you know, uh, develop this interest of working on something related to notice in the in the future. Uh, but then there was a sense, you know, of this. Uh, well, there was a sense of this lack of, you know, good quality scholarships, particularly when it comes to the meso. So I feel, you know, uh, I, I feel that, you know, uh, even. With the kind of existing literature, I'm not saying that there is no literature. Definitely, there are a lot of literature. But then, the literature seems to be, you know, misrep- either misrepresenting or either, you know, uh, uh, misunderstood. So, for example, in the case of the uh, Mizo politics or Mizo uh, Mizo national movement, which I'm, uh, which my book is based upon. So, time and again, we see how you know the movement has been reduced to insurgency. Reduced to ethnic conflict, reduced to you know some misguided youths who have who are creating trouble in India's periphery, and the other problem that I find is you know uh, in terms of how uh, academia itself uh, represents the movement. So there was this kind of you know sense of urgency within me when I was doing my BNMA, and by the time when I was completing my MA, I I have made up my mind that you know I'm going to work something on the National Front movement and. The title of my PhD is to be something like the rise and fall of MNF movement. So, uh, with this kind of you know urgency in mind and the kind of you know academia scholarship that is being produced in Northeast India and Mizos in particular, so I began to develop you know uh, that you know uh, somewhere you know the contribution that I can make to the wider scholarship on Northeast India and Mizos in particular is working on this topic. And I chose the MNF because uh, it was two decades of I mean uh, I'm uh, struggling, and it is one of the most significant political events in Mizoram history. And secondly, I think it is also important to center the voice of the Mizos, uh, whether it is you know for the movement or whether whether it is against the movement. So I think it is important to place the voice of the Mizos and the heart of you know what we are writing. So that is you know how I uh, how I begin to develop this idea and that is you know how I uh nurtured this idea of over you know the past uh seven to eight years. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean as you are explaining it, um those uh, ten years of critical thinking on the topic and working on it is actually really coming out and I think that is how what is in seen in the book itself also and that is something uh, which is very interesting about this book and also your work. So moving on and uh, you know setting a backdrop to the discussion here, um, this book talks about the Miso. So can you tell us something about the Mizos culturally, geographically, right? Um, tell us something about the Mizos. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, ethnically, uh, Mizos uh, uh, live, you know, in, uh, in largely in the northeastern part of India. Uh, uh, majority of them live in Mizora. 
uh, whereas you know there are also certain uh, sections of the population who lives in Assam, uh, Manipur, and Tripura historically. Uh, but then, the best way to look at the, the best way to put them is that you know they are a transnational community, in a sense that you know they have uh, they live in India, they also live in uh, in Chin State and Sagan Division of Myanmar, as well as the Chittagong Hills track in in Bangladesh. So. Uh, and within Northeast India, also, like I said, you know, they live uh, in different states of uh, Northeast India, different states of Northeast India. So administratively and in terms of constitutionally, these also recognize as settled tribes, uh, settled tribes uh, or what we call tribal communities in India. So uh, uh, in terms of, say, religion, in terms of language, uh, uh, Mizos have embraced uh, Christianity with, uh, 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 with colonialism and uh, other than that, culturally, uh, culturally and socially, and today I think Mizos, uh, at least in Mizorums, in Mizoram are quite developed in terms of uh, language, in terms of culture, in terms of uh, media communications, among others. So I think that should be fine. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very uh, good backdrop uh, to the communities that you are actually working on. Um, now, coming to the political aspect of it, and this um, book has to deal with the historical and the present scenario of the political aspect of the communities that you're working on, the Mesos. Uh Now, it has a long history of colonialism and all the internal you know, discussion with the Indian um, states that had happened. So, uh, can you give us a short, uh, this political backdrop or history to about the Mesos, yeah, to understand the um, scenario of the discussion here. Yes. Okay. Uh, so before uh, before I go into that uh, question, uh, one thing that I forgot is that the Mizo is a conglomeration of clans and tribes. Uh, it is not a single tribal identity. So there are several clans and tribes uh, who have been uh, who are now identifying themselves as Mizos. Uh, so I think that that, that is uh, one important point I think which I have forgot. Yeah. Uh, which I forgot. Now, uh, politically speaking, uh, Mesos were uh, in uh, the areas which are inhabited by the Mesos were annexed uh, by the colonial state in the late uh, in the late nineteenth uh, century, uh, with uh, with the expansion of you know tea plantations such as in Assam, also with the you know annexation of uh, Myanmar or the Kingdom of Awa. so. Like many other tribes, Mizos uh, uh, resisted, you know, the colonial expansion in the hills, and that resistance, you know, against the uh, of the British has brought them into contact with them. And by I think the by 1896, uh, the entire uh, areas which are today inhabited by the Mizos were more or less integrated under the colonial empire. Now, uh, so. India got independence in the year 1947. And if we look at in terms of the number of years uh, in which Mizo will colonize, it is only 50 years, 50 to 60 years. Uh, however, you know, the kind of socio-political transformation that Mizo's experienced during the period was very, very drastic. So the society was, you know, undergoing a very, very significant transformation in that 50 to 60 years. Uh, one also largely because of the period of, uh, you know, the introduction of uh, education, introduction of writing systems, but also at the same time, uh, it activated, you know, a new kind of uh, politics among the society with the emergence of educated class, particularly. 
So by the, by the 1940s, what we see what we see was that you know uh, a new form of politics begin to take root in middle society, where the educated elites were demanding a form of uh, political representations, uh, political representations within the either within the colonial structure or outside of it. I think this is an important point because uh, Mizoram and any other uh, most parts of tribal areas in Northeast India were put under indirect rule. So most of the time we tend to think that you know uh, the hill areas in Northeast India, including Mizoram, were you know very quiet when it comes to their political participation in the national movement. Uh, and you know they were also quite because they were geographically isolated. But then on the contrary, what we see is that within the hills there was a lot of political churning, and there were and there was a lot of you know unease, political you know anxiety. There was a lot of you know uh, political mobilizations that were happening in Mizoris. So uh, the Mizor elites, including the Mizor public at large, were against the colonial idea of retaining Mizoris underground colony, for example. So I uh, and then you know the estab- the establishment of the first political party in Zoe Hills in 1946 was the watershed moment, in a sense that it was something which was homegrown. It was not established, you know, uh, by the help of the British or the missionaries or anyone for that matter. It was established by the Mizos themselves. That was uh, that you, that uh, that later on. Uh, play a pivotal role in terms of demanding autonomy, in terms of demanding recognition of their identity as a music. So I think I will stop here. We can take it forward accordingly. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's a very good um, political backdrop of the native agentic way of trying to, you know, come up with a, or having a sense of political consciousness in that sense. And uh, that is uh, that is a very uh, well good um, uh, argument. Now, um, nationalism, the word nationalism and the concept of being used of it is a very broad term. Uh, now, I want to specifically come to the question of how, uh, in which way or from which lens are you using nationalism. Now, in your book, you have said that there are three paradigms of uh, how Mizo nationalism has looked unto, right, by different scholars. That is, the first one is ethno, ethno-nationalist, second one is the constructivist, and third one is uh, religion and Mizo nationalism. So, um, in in which way you are putting nationalism and how are you are looking at uh, this um, aspect? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I I acknowledge and appreciate and I find value in the three paradigms that I have uh, that I have uh, identified and mentioned, and I think I have also uh, to a certain extent engaged with them. Uh, but then one problem or uh, one thing that I find inadequate is that there seems to be a reluctance to use the term nationalism when it comes to communities like the Mizo. So either we, you know, uh, use ethnic nationalism, for example. So because uh, there is a tendency to, to only equate nationalism with uh, a state. So only, only, you know, existing nation state have, you know, nationalism. So if there is one nationalism, it, one nationalism that is being identified with the state, then uh, the assumption is that there can there cannot be any other kind of nationalism. Any other kind of nationalism within the nation state is reduced to ethnic nationalism, sub-nationalism, local nationalism, so on and so forth. So uh, rather than taking that kind of route or that kind of path, I prefer to understand meso-nationalism as a nationalism. In the way we understand, you know, say American nationalism, British nationalism, Malaysian nationalism, Indian nationalism or for, for that matter. So 
and then uh, taking it forward, there is something which is also very, very, which I think which is also very, very specific about nationalism is the role of oral culture or what I call the relationship between orality and national, nationalist politics from which I derive and develop the idea of nationalism in the vernacular. Now, within nationalism studies, uh, within nationalism studies, there is, I think, a striking obsession uh, to look at, uh, to, you know, to examine nationalism as something which is entirely modern. Or, you know, there is a striking obsession that, you know, nationalism is, uh, nationalism can arise. So the idea of modern nationalism is, the, the idea of nationalism that we know today is something which can come up, arise only in the context of uh, uh, modernization such as, you know, industrialization, technological advancement, so on and so forth. I think this is something which is uh, very much relevant in the work of, say, Benedict Anderson, who has written, you know, Imagine Communities. Uh, but then, now, how do we how do we use that kind of concept? How do we, we use that kind of analytical frame in a society which was relatively very backward, which was relatively very agrarian, and which was tribal, you know, with a, with a kinship kind of social organization? Now, I, I find a kind of, you know, like you now, in, or, you know, I find that, you know, existing theories of nationalism were inadequate to explain the kind of nationalism that we see in, you know, in, in, in the Mizo context. So therefore, you know, uh, through my interactions and interviews with, uh, with, you know, the participants of the movement, I was quite struck by the fact that, you know, many of them were song composers also. So then, you know, I started to engage with, you know, what kind of songs they composed with the composers. Then I, I then I, Realize that, you know, during the period of the movement alone, during the 20 years of the movement, there are more than 300 songs which have been composed in relation to the movement, in relation to the struggles. And then going before, before, the, before the outbreak of the conflict in 1966, there were several song composers as well who has contributed significantly to the idea of nationalism. So to bring, to, to be able to, able to bring these kind of diverse, diverse voices I, and, you know, to also situate Mizo nationalism within the particular sociocultural milieu of Mizo society, I, you know, I look at the relationship between orality and nationalist politics. Basically, I'm moving away from this very uh, modernist explanation when it comes to the rise and emergence of nationalism, you know, such as, you know, focusing only on green culture. Rather than that, you know, I think that for a society, and a, a very, very oral society like the Mizos, we cannot undermine or we cannot underwrite the role of oral culture in shaping, in, in you know, in shaping and influencing the idea of Muslim nationalism. Yes, uh, yes, I think that's a very uh, interesting perspective for us to looking at nationalism from orality. Now, moving on, I think here your work mostly focuses on the Muslim National Front, uh, the uh, body that um, uh, has come about in 1966, which existed till 19. 19- 86. Now, um, so putting this perspective, right, the orality, the perspective of orality into the um, uh, the fieldwork that you, you have carried out, uh, can you tell us something about the Mizo National Front and how the, this orality in the form of songs were materialized in, you know, forming a nationalistic consciousness within them? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, uh, uh, I think that yeah, it is a very important question because... I, 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 I just remember that I have not really spelled out the MNF. So, uh, yes. So, uh, previously, like I said, the first political party that came, uh, that emerged in Mizo, in Mizo society was the Mizo Union, which was in 1946. And 
the Mizo Union was was largely a party of the commoners. Commoners in a sense that Mizo society uh, has two broad class. One is a chief, one one are the chiefs, and the chiefs and you know the allies, like you know the priests, you know uh, many others who have high social standing, and the the vast majority of them are the commoners. So Mizo Mizo Union was a party of the commoners. Now. Uh, the history of the the history of Mizo Union is important because uh, it it Mizo Union demanded the abolition of chieftainship in Mizo society, and it was eventually abolished in the year 1954. So the traditional political structure in Mizo society was done away with in 1954 by an act of parliament. Now, however, there was always this you know uh, uh, this tension within Mizo society, a kind of political undercurrent, which was that, you know, uh, whether we should integrate it in India or whether we should remain independent. So uh, the Mizo Union also faced the, faced similar kind of questions at the dawn of India's independence. But then the priority of the people, of the Mizo people, at the dawn of India's independence was to abolish chieftainship. However, this issue of independence versus integration continued to simmer. And in 19, by the 1950s uh, and the 1960s, uh, Musai, Mizoram, which was uh, known as Musai Hills, later on it was known as Mizo Hills, uh, it, was part, it was made part of Assam. And there was this growing, you know, uh, Assamese nationalism. And one way in which it manifests was an attempt to impose uh, Assamese language all over. Assam. So there was a resentment against it uh, through which political parties such as the Mizo Union demanded, you know, set, uh, a separate Mizo statehood. At the same time, in 1959, there was a famine. In, uh, there was a famine in Mizo Hills, in Mizo Ram. Now, to provide relief and rehabilitation, a new organization under the banner Mizo National Fam Famine Front was established. Um, the famine resulted into the loss of at least thousands of Mizos. And measles were already quite alienated in the way in which some government handled the famine. And for a population of, say, for example, uh, for a population of about one lakh, some, you know, one lakh fifty thousand maybe, the debt of one thousand, you know, was quite high. And this has, you know, uh, alienated the vast majority of the measles population. Now, in 1962, when the famine received, that Mizo National Famine Front leaders, including you know those who were not part of the organization, uh, deliberated on the need to come up with a new political party, and then eventually in 1962 they came up with Mizo National Front by dropping the word famine. So that is you know a short uh, history of how the MNF came into being. Now the MNF in no time emerged as the main political rival rival of the main of the uh, Mizo Union, which was established in the year 1946. And many young Mizos, many Mizo youths, were drawn into the idea of uh, what the MNF called Zanenna freedom. So many, many Mizo youths who were studying in Shillong, in Gauhati in particularly, were drawn into the idea of MNF ideology. So in 1962, the party came into being, and by night, and in, 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 in 1966, February 28, it declared independence from Indian Union. But between the four to five years period, they have led a massive mobilization where both the educated and the commoners, or what we may call the literate and the illiterate sections of Mizo populations, 
participated and endorsed the idea of uh, freedom struggle or the idea of Zalena, uh, that is uh, uh, freedom. Now, this is you know something which uh, enabled the MNF to garner you know a massive support. But however, it was not only that you know the educated class in the vast majority supported very blindly. One thing that the MNF did very MNF successfully did was it creatively tapped into the oral culture of the measles. So, for example, in 1962, they organized a choir competition and invited Mizo composers to compose what in the book I call Nantla national song. So the, the famous, one of the most famous Mizo composer who, who was also awarded Mizo Poet of the Century, Rokunga, his song Hartla Hartla, Awake Awake, was chosen as you know one of the best songs and it was sung in the choir competition. Likewise, his song Rowin Real Sakangchek, which is also you know a, a, a song, a devotional song, composed you know with uh, a very religious overtone, was chosen by the MNF as the national anthem. Now, why why is this important today? Even Rowin a song is regarded as Mizo national anthem, and whenever there is any kind of uh, social gathering in Mizo society, his song continue to be sung. Now. 1960s and the 1970s, if you look back, there was no real uh, Mizo society was, you know, moving towards very high literacy, but communication was minimal. Technological advancement was not very high. But then something which worked for the MNF was they creatively tap into the oral culture of the Mizos. Now, oral culture, when we are using oral culture, it means that you are spreading messages in the language that is already being known by the people. And now oral culture is something which is ingrained in Mizo society. So therefore, you know, it becomes more easy for them to spread the ideas of nationalism. And within nationalism studies, what one of the most one of the key aspects of any national any nationalism or any nationalism studies is the medium in which the idea of nationalism spreads, right? Now, for example, the medium can be television, the medium can be, you know, dance, the medium can be food. The medium can be print culture. But in the case of the measles, the medium of spreading the idea of nationalism across borders was the oral culture. So therefore, you know, throughout the period, much much before MNF started launching the arms struggle, they have already used songs to mobilize the larger public. And I think that will work in their favor. And I and I think to, to this day this is something that has been largely, you know, overlooked by many scholars, you know, who are working uh, in Mizo society, in to understand Mizo politics, or even you know to understand the larger tribal politics. I hope I'm able to uh, uh, situate it. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's a that's a very good way of putting uh, how MNF was formed and the need for it, and also how you know they gathered the people together through the medium of uh, music. That's a, that's a very uh, interesting thing. Now. Uh, Moving on, I think you have mentioned this one uh, previously about uh, the integration, right? Integration, the state integrating to the, uh, the India. Now, talking about this, now you mentioned that the um, issue of integration is more about, you know, uh, inclusion rather than integration per se, right? So, what do you really mean by that? Can you expound something on this one? Yeah. Uh, well, uh my idea of uh, integration and my idea of inclusion is that you know in many ways i think integration is being done 
integration was a success, right? Politically, most parts of, you know, except for the partition of India, now, territorially and politically, every, every Mizos or anyone for that matter, politically and territorially are integrated under the Indian Union. But then that integration does not necessarily resulted into then being accepted as equal members of the Indian, of the larger Indian society. Now, however, within the broader or within the dominant academic discourse, I think what we see is that given that one, measles are the joy, and second, Mizoram or the area which are inhibited by the measles is geographically quite distant from New Delhi. So there is a tendency to reduce the problem as the issue of, you know, the measles or the larger Northeast India as a problem of national integration. Now, it assumes that, you know, if we integrate them, if we integrate them, the problem will be solved, right? Or if we integrate them into the national mainstream, tribals are facing, tribal problem in India is a problem of integration, for example. This is something which is being, you know, circulated over and over and over again. But then, nobody spelled out what, what will be the basis of integration, right? On what basis are we going to integrate them? And however, I feel that, you know, politically, we are all integrated under the Indian Union. And integration was a success. But then why do, why is there, why is there this continuing tensions over the questions of nationality, over the questions of, you know, ethnicity? And I think this is largely because, this is, this is largely because of the problem in which the way they're integrated. So rather than taking, you know, this integration issue, I think, you know, it is far more, uh, it is, uh, it is it to use inclusion is far more you know uh, something that uh, that needs to be engaged with right on what basis you know on what basis are are we going to include them right are we including are you including including them as equal members you know of the nation so I think that this is uh, this is something that uh, that that I aim to deal with now second uh, second is who lay the terms of integration now. For to, to unpack this, I look at two things. One, I look at the constituent, constituent assembly debates, particularly on the sixth schedule. And second, I look at, you know, some sometime back in the year 2018 and 19, there was a huge protest in Mizoram over the naming of uh, one Mizo tribal hero as Indian freedom fighter. Now, in the constituent assembly, what we see is that, you know, many of the plains people were against the idea of granting any kind of autonomy to the tribals. In, in north in northeast India, so the term of integration was framed between these two uh, these two opposite poles: integration and isolation. One group is vouching for integration of tribes. Second group, coming from anthropologists like Weir or with they're saying that no, we should isolate them. But the problem is that the tri- between these two debate, the tribal voice is continually being submerged. What do tribals have to say about integration? What do tribals have to say about integration or the isolationist debate? So I think it is always someone else speaking on behalf of tribes. Likewise, in the constituent assembly debates also, the kind of anxiety and insecurity that were being expressed by certain members of the uh, certain members of the constituent assembly evokes or resonate, you know, prejudice views about you know tribals in the you know tribals in India, and. The other problem uh, is that you know these kind of prejudice views continue to resonate quite powerfully, uh, quite evidently in, uh, in contemporary India. One in two ways: first, 
there is so racism that is being experienced by you know uh, many of the northeastern communities. And second, at the more political level, when there was an attempt to name uh, a Mizo tribal, a, a Mizo hero, which Mizo called Mizo Pasalcha, as an Indian freedom fighter, there was a huge resistance against the attempt to name a Mizo tribal hero as Indian freedom fighter. Basically because the argument which was made by the Mizos was that our tribal hero was a hero and he died defending Mizoram, but he does not necessarily die defending the Indi Indian state or he was not an Indian at the first at the first place. So my point is, you know, not to go into the debate whether you whether you know he is an Indian or not. My point is a sense of having a distinct history and a distinct identity continue to remain in the minds and hearts of many measles even today. So this is where, you know, I prefer to look at the problem of nationality in India as an issue of inclusion and not as an and not as an issue of integration. Yes. Yes, I think that's a really interesting perspective. Now, in your book, you also talk about peace. Now, so uh, going on to the topic of peace, right? You also kind of um, argue uh, or mention that somehow with integration, the Mizoram integrating with the um, Indian state, um, somehow the state, the peaceful state has been achieved. But um, talking about the Mizo National Front and when you talk about peace, what kind of peace were they longing for and what kind of peace they, uh, did uh, Mizoram achieve in that sense? Can you explore something about that? Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I look at, you know, the making of peace in Mizoram in two ways. Uh, one is what I call the politics for peace. By politics for peace, my main argument is that uh, it is not always that, you know, state or the civil societies are always... Uh, you know, having this interest to bring about order and normalcy, but rather peacemaking is interlocked with political interests. So in many times what we see is that political parties at the local, regional, or at the, at the, at the center level always, you know, have their own interests when it comes to the making and unmaking of peace. So for example, whether or not dialogue is to be continued or not, or whether dialogue, whether the leaders should be arrested or not, or whether we should you know, uh, whether, you know, political dialogue should be carried forward or not. These are something which are which is quite entangled with, you know, political interests. Now, for example, uh, the Mizo movement started in 1966 and then it ended in 1986 with the Mizo, uh, Mizo Peace Accord. But then the MNF leadership was already, you know, uh, showing signs of dialogue with the Indian government from the early 1970s itself. So say, for example, Lal Denga, the president of Mizo National Front, uh, have written a letter to the then Prime Minister Indira Gandhi for a dialogue. Now, the question is that, you know, and the first ceasefire agreement between the MNF and the government of India was signed in the year 1976. Now, the question that one has to ask is, why is it that it took another 10 years since the signing of the first ceasefire agreement to 10 years for government of India and MNF to reach some agreement. Now, between between the 10 years, there are many things that are happening within Mizoram as well as uh, uh, at the uh, central level. One, the national emergency happened, and then the right, and then the you know the Congress government was ousted by the Zanata government, right? So, and in 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 Mizo local politics, new political actors were emerging who were against you know the who were against the signing of you know peace accord. 
So all these, you know, uh, issue intermes, you know, the issue of peace, you know, was, uh, uh, the issue of peace was, you know, uh, embroiled within, you know, the political struggles and contests for power between political parties. That is how I look at it. And that is what I call politics for peace. So peace is not something which is, you know, uh, which does not necessarily, uh, which is not taken forward because of any uh, benevolence as such. Peace is, you know, something which, to, to my reading, very, very political. And the other part is that today, Mizoram is considered to be one of the most peaceful states in Northeast India. And to this, you know, many times political leaders are being credited. I think the credit of peace should go to the people of Mizoram because they have been, you know, the one who has fought, fought for the idea of peace. But unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, there is something, you know, uh, which is troubling in the context of Mizoram is that there is a perpetual silence being maintained on the sufferings you know, of the people during the 20 years of the MNF movement. I think this is being you know, subsumed under the broader discourse of the Mo- of Mizoram is the most peaceful state in Northeast India. Yeah, so coming to my last question as we come to the end of this podcast, um, now you also talk about, um, obviously the main focus is nationalism, the movement and um, the music, uh, how the different kinds of music has been used. So when you look at the context today and when you look at Mizoram and the different tribes coexisting uh, together and also the, you know, their sense of nationalism that is there, you know, when you look at uh, the context today, uh, how, how do you, I mean, how do you see Mizoram today uh, from the past that, you know, all the uh, political um negotiations that it has come across, all the different kinds of uh, understanding uh, that they have had through the different historical conjectures that you know they have come across. Today, uh, how do you see and understand their understanding of nationalism and you know want the way forward? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I think uh, that is a very good way to uh, end, uh, uh, end this talk, uh, end this discussion. So I, I started my book uh, with an event, uh, maybe uh, that was, you know, a political event uh, sometime uh, in 2018 or 19. Now, uh, I say it is an important way to end it simply because uh, many considered Mizoram nationalism was being buried along with the signing of the peace accord. But then political events, even after 1986, you know, in many occasions have shown that the feeling, feeling of Mizoram nationalism continue to remain alive. And 1986 does not necessarily mean the end of Mizoram nationalism as such. So, that's, so therefore, you know, nationalism is not always, you know, to be expressed something in a violent way. Nationalism can be expressed in our everyday life in terms of food, dress. But the, but the, the, the specific event that I talk about, in, uh, which, which happened in, in 2018 or 19, uh, was uh, 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 was a reminder as to how you know uh, Mizo nationalism belonged to the masses in a sense that you know it was the people who came out on the street and protested against something. So how we read the protest can be can be you know can be different. But then another important thing is that during the protest, it was a massive protest in Mizoram. In Mizoram, in the Mizoram in the past, I don't think have seen such kind of you know ma- massive mobilization. One thing which was very important was that. Songs which are composed before the M- before the period of the MNF movement, during the period of the MNF movement, were written, circulated in Facebook, in WhatsApp, in uh, in Instagram as well. So that is where you know uh, I find that you know how songs is so pivotal to understanding and explain Mizoram nationalism. And today, Mizoram nationalism in many ways is alive 
and he's being nurtured sing two songs so uh to end i think you know mizo nationalism is something which is always you know uh it does not end but it is always something which is under construction and it is being shaped and actively shaped by uh, the people themselves yes so um is there anything from the book that you know during our conversation that i might have missed out that you want to mention yeah anything uh well uh, not so much but then uh the methodology i think was missing in our conversation but you know we i think uh the the audience will get a fair idea of how i uh, you know how i collected the data and how uh, how how i you know uh, developed the idea in the book so i i think the methodology part was it but other than that i think uh, we have you know uh, very well covered you know all the points and uh, yeah persons are very very sharp and very very pointed uh, i am not sure whether i was able to answer properly but i think i think i i, I think it was a wonderful conversation yeah yeah thank you thank you thank you for that so um you know is there any project that you are currently working on or you will be working on which the our audience i mean our audience would like to know that yeah uh, yeah so yeah so i am working on uh, two very different project uh, one is i am working on specifically on violence uh, the during the period of the count, the counter insurgency but i look at the period of village grouping which was uh, conducted between 1967 to 1970 So I look at that period, the experience of violence. Uh, that is one thing, you know, uh, one thing, uh, one one project that I'm working. The other is that you know, currently uh, I I'm trying to build something very ambitious thing, which is an oral archive. So when I'm collecting, you know, stories, you know, whenever I get a chance to go home. Uh, so, but the first project also has to do with the oral oral archive. But in the second project, you know, I collect, you know, whatever I can collect. Because I think you know the oral culture or the oral stories uh, needs to be preserved and documented. So these are the two projects, and I I would be very you know happy to collaborate, share ideas, you know, expand it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very interesting projects um that you're doing and things ahead of you. So if anyone wants to reach out to you regarding your book or ask any questions or you know just uh, have some conversation with you, how do people reach out to you? Yeah. Uh, well, the most uh, uh, the most uh, easy and efficient way is to write to me. I am quite active, uh, yeah, as long you know, pro- provided I have uh, uh, internet access. So you can just write to me uh, 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 to email. Uh, my my ID is p u i a at the rate h s dot i i t r dot a c dot i n. So you can just you know type my name. I think I think it will just you know pop up. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much um Dr. Puya for having this conversation with me. I would like the listeners to you know get a hold of the book and then you know delve deeper into the materials that have been discussed today. I'm sure there are so many things that I haven't been discussed uh, at this moment but as you pick up the book and as you go through it I'm sure there will be many more uh, you know details um, minute and intricate details that can be really uh, garnered from reading the book. So yeah, thank you very much Dr. Puya for being here at New Books Network. Thank you so much. It is such a pleasure.